No matter what your thoughts may be on any particular topic, it can be hard to feel comfortable expressing those ideas in today's highly charged social climate. But as dangerous as words can seem, they're a powerful tool as well, one we should all be more willing to utilize over more coercive means, especially in the face of actual totalitarian threats. All that and more on this episode of The Liberty Exchange. I'm Jonathan Fortier, director of Libertarianism.org. This is the first episode of Liberty Exchange, and we thought, what better way to launch our podcast than to have a conversation about Václav Havel? Havel was a Czech dissident who modeled courageous opposition to totalitarian power and argued for the necessity of talking across ideological lines in the struggle for individual freedom. To discuss Havel, I'm joined by Milan Babik. Milan has lectured at Williams and Dartmouth Colleges prior to joining the faculty at Colby College in Maine where he teaches international relations, American foreign policy, 20th century history, and the politics and history of Europe. Babik was born in Schumpeter, Czechoslovakia, during the normalization era, and was 10 years old when the Velvet Revolution transformed life in Czechoslovakia. Milan went on to complete school in the US, then to the UK, studying at the London School of Economics in Oxford, where he completed a doctorate in politics and international relations in 2009. Babik has written on Wilsonian statecraft, political religions, narrative theory, and the role of language and fiction in thinking about international politics. Last year, he organized a conference on Václav Havel and the crisis of Western liberal democracy. Babik is the recipient of the Crystal Heart Award from the Czech Center in New York City, recognizing public diplomacy efforts promoting friendship and cooperation between the Czech Republic and the United States. In today's episode, we discuss his childhood experiences growing up in Czechoslovakia during the Velvet Revolution, the importance of language in shaping politics and reality, and what we can learn from Václav Havel's fight for greater freedom and the necessity to live authentically in the midst of totalitarian threats. We hope you enjoy it. Milan, welcome to Liberty Exchange. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I was um, drawn to talk to you uh, after I saw the very impressive uh, event you put together at Colby last year, bringing uh, many many people together to talk about Havel and talk about um, his legacy. I thought uh, before we delved into to that event and some of the themes that emerged out of that, it would be great to get a sense of your history as a Czech national and how you came to Havel and what Havel meant to you when you were growing up and as you were pursuing your studies and your research. So I think I'll begin just with a series of questions about your time um, in the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia as it was then. You were a 10-year-old boy during the Velvet Revolution in 1989. Many people were watching that from afar with excitement and amazement, but you were there in the country. What, what are your memories of those months, and how would you convey the sense of excitement and instability at that time? I have very vivid recollections of the, the day or the few days when everything started, because distru the disruption was, uh, was palpable. 
it was everywhere. Even for a 10 year old, um, it was impossible to miss that something important was going on, something that was very uh, out of the ordinary uh, and so on. Um, I was walking back home from an evening choir uh, practice, choir session. I was uh, essentially a singer. I uh, participated in a choir. 40 girls and myself, I hated it at the time. But in the evening, I was walking back home, as I frequently did. And uh, I had to walk cross town in Schumberg. And um, I always passed by the theater, uh, which is an old, big building right in the center. Nothing ever happened there in the evening. It was always quiet, uh, deserted, uh, except that day. Uh, there was a couple of people sitting there quietly on the steps. And they had the Czech flag, Czechoslovak flag, actually a couple of them. They had candles. It was by by no means a demonstration. It was nothing loud, nothing, uh, nothing of that sort. But it was a sight that was very different from what I was used to. Uh, and it, it definitely... Uh, immediately uh, sort of triggered my curiosity. What is going on? Why are they here? Uh, and so on. Uh, up to that point, the only kind of demonstrations, uh, any time that you would show the Czechoslovak flag, would be the official May Day parades and, and so on and so forth. So this was quite extraordinary, uh, this uh, public uh, citizen initiative. Right? Um, and then I came home and I asked my parents, what's going on? Uh, would you happen to know? Um, and I do remember the response right away. We do not know. Uh, we are not going to pay any attention. Um, that was that night. But within a few days, once uh, this all gained traction, once it started showing up on TV, uh, once the civic forum was formed, schools started shutting down. In other words, we suddenly didn't have uh, classes. Right? Uh, we could take a day or two uh, off. Um, and even when we went to school, um, uh, the regular rhythm uh, of, of our classes was disrupted. Suddenly, teachers would not be talking about the subject matter in, in Czech or geography and whatnot, and we would be discussing entirely different things. What is going on around us and so on, which was also very different. Education was very scripted up to that point. You would stick to the textbooks and you would do uh, exactly what was in them and follow the curriculum. Except now it was much more, much more organic. Uh, suddenly we're engaging with the world outside of the classroom, and that too was very new, very different. Uh, so I have very sort of uh, uh, exact, precise memories uh, of of the of the days in November uh, 1989, uh, the first week or two, including the massive demonstrations that would soon start taking place all around the country, not just in Prague. There would be big gatherings in public squares in Schumberg as well, uh, with thousands of people uh, and speakers and so on. And that too was extraordinary, um, going out with my parents, my grandparents who lived with us to these events, uh, uh, really at the beginning of, of the winter season. So it was really cold, really chilly. The weather was not pleasant. Um, and we would stand there and we would freeze to death. But we would be there and we would be listening and everybody would be very sort of captivated and you could feel the energy in the crowd. Um, I don't think that there was any sense of fear. Uh, I think it was this spontaneous gathering uh, that was just erupting from within society. Um, 
everybody was extremely kind and nice uh, to each other, complete strangers, right? And you could glimpse some of that uh, from the gatherings in Prague where you would have, you know, Wenceslaus Square filled with tens of thousands of people, but everybody would make way for the ambulance coming in to retrieve somebody who uh, who got lightheaded or, or perhaps uh, was indisposed in another way. So it was this massive, just massive coming together. It was an existential moment. It was not a, just a political moment. It was uh, it was much deeper than that. Uh, uh, I could not, I did not have the terminology, the, the vocabulary and the concepts to think about that as a 10-year-old, but you could feel it. Uh, you could feel that energy erupting from somewhere deep within, within the society. Were your parents very interested in the political discussions that were occurring at the time? Did you grow up in a, in a context, in a family, and in a community that was engaged in the ideas, or were people just trying to get by uh, and try to disengage from, uh, from the political discussions? So it was an interesting home and an interesting household that I grew up in. My parents um, uh, did not talk politics at all. Um, they were very disengaged, um, and in that regard, I think uh, they were quite sort of typical in that regard. Most Czechoslovaks throughout the late 1960s, uh, 1970s, 1980s, the normalization era, they really checked out. It was a country that was completely depressed in the wake of the August 1968 invasion of Czechoslovakia by the Warsaw Pact. Uh, everybody saw what happened to the Prague Spring. So, so they all checked out, didn't want to talk about it, realized that their careers, their everyday lives would be, would be seriously affected if they were to start talking about these things. But in my household, in my home, uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, my maternal grandparents are part of the equation as well. Um, and they, especially my grandfather, was not afraid. Uh, uh, his, uh, his history was much, much deeper, longer. Um, uh, he was born during the interwar era uh, in 1920, just after World War One. So he remembered the First Republic, um, uh, the Democratic Republic, uh, and Masaryk, and so on. The same uh, held for my grandmother, uh, and they uh, had to undergo quite the ordeal during World War Two, uh, separated and and fighting um, on the Eastern Front, uh, actually on the German side. I mean, it's a classic Central European history, extremely complicated. Um, and then, then once uh, uh, once he came back from war, uh, uh, you know, he became an engineer. Uh, eventually, bought the house that we lived in, and he did that really just a few months before the invasion of 1968. Uh, so he spent his life up to that point running away from from the Soviets and trying to fight them. Uh, and in 1968, he bought a home. Uh, uh, and within a few months of that purchase, uh, the Soviets set up shop right literally next door. Uh, we had Soviet barracks flanking the house from, from two sides. So that was the home into which I was born. Um, the Soviets were part of my everyday reality. Uh, I considered that completely natural. Uh, there were no reasons to question their presence. It's simply the world you're, you're born in. Um, except for my grandfather, who just kept... Uh, you know, uh, pestering them with, with insults and and throwing garden vegetable across uh, vegetables across the wall and so on. So there was always something to make you wonder what's going on here, uh, and eventually how did these these soldiers got here? Uh, what's going on with this country? Uh, even as a ten year old, um, you had that 
or I had that on my radar. Once again, not in ways uh, utilizing political theory and um, um, complicated national history, but through the microcosm of these relationships uh, uh, and, and people uh, right under uh, the roof of the home into which I was born. You grew up in Schomperk, but then you earned a scholarship to study in the U.S. Where did you go to study school in the U.S.? I attended Berkshire School in uh, in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. Uh, uh, it's it's a it's a small uh, boarding school, college uh, prep school. Uh, there are many in in that area, so that's uh, where the foundation that organized that scholarship competition in in the Czech and Slovak republics at that point there were two separate republics uh, following the disintegration of Czechoslovakia. Uh, that's where I was was sent to. Um, I actually did not have much say over the the specific choice of the institution. The foundation essentially worked with about 20 institutions in the United Kingdom and in the United States, um, and their representatives had the sort of final pick out of the finalists. So I simply walked into the gymnasium of Schoenberg, which is where I was a sophomore at that time, and one morning my English teacher uh, yelled across the entire sort of atrium and said, you are going to America, uh, and then proceeded to inform me that there is a letter waiting at the post office for my parents to be picked up uh, from Prague, from the representatives of the foundation, and we were off to the races, so to speak. So when you came to the U.S. to study, you would have been a teenager? Yes, I was 16 years of age, yes. And did you notice dramatic differences between North American life and life in the Czech Republic? Absolutely. So I, of course, came with a set of perceptions uh, in my head. Um, I had certain expectations as to what I would find in the United States. It was impossible really to to escape images of the United States in the years following the Velvet Revolution. Um, I mean, ice hockey is big in, in the Czech Republic. And back then, in the early 1990s, Jaromir Jagr was at the beginning of his professional career here in the United States, winning one Stanley Cup after another with the Pittsburgh Penguins. And we were all crazy about that. So we would be getting up you know, at 1 a.m., to watch the NHL games, uh, which up to that point mm, were were not available. It was it was something extraordinary, and of course, all kinds of brands and and chains. McDonald's opening their first store in Prague. So America had this had this sort of flashy appearance. Um, we tended to associate it with let's say urban landscapes and skyscrapers, and of course, wealth and success. Uh, uh, and such. And then when I came to the United States and um, proceeded straight to the Berkshires, uh, which are very rural, uh, um, and it's an isolated, fairly isolated campus uh, sitting next to a very small town of really just a few hundred people, uh, it, it didn't line up. Um, so it felt like something that was completely at odds with the image, uh, the outward image of America, the what I might call packaging of America in in Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic at that time. Um, so I had difficulty uh, adjusting. It was not exactly what I expected. Uh, it was not Manhattan. It was not the skyscrapers. It was not all that. And of course, um, in in Czechoslovakia at that time, and even in the Czech Republic today, 
we simply do not have uh, the kind of boarding schools, residential boarding schools, camp, uh, a campus that would sit somewhere in the mountains or in the woods, relatively secluded. Um, that's some, something that we are not familiar with. Um, so in that regard, um, it was a, a very kind of interesting experience. It was an early lesson in uh, the power of images and how they shape your perception of the world and then what's underneath them, which may not really correspond. And it triggered some really interesting exchanges with my parents and grandparents because, of course, they were very eager to 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 find out um, how I was doing, what the school was like, uh, and so on. Back then, there was no internet. Uh, there were no mobile phones. It was all about letters, uh, which we wrote. Um, they would take 10 days to travel each way, so the conversation would span a month, right? But they would be asking me, what about, you know, can you send us uh, any pictures of of um, the skyscrapers? Can you send us any pictures of the cities? Uh, and all I could respond with would be would be images of you know the woods um, and and the dorms uh, and the chapel perhaps. Um, and for them, it was quite disappointing. You're not in America. <laughs> I'd like to shift to um, Havel's influence on some of your thinking. Um, do you? Remember when you first encountered Havel? Was it when you were um, in school in the Czech Republic, or was it um, you know later in your studies? What was the moment when you first really discovered him? My initial encounter with him really corresponded with the Velvet Revolution. Right uh, when he entered the national stage, so to speak, in the spotlight, that is when I became aware of him as this new face, this person around around whom seemingly everything was revolving starting in November 1989. I do have to admit that up until that point, I was not familiar with him at all. Uh, I don't think that his name ever was mentioned uh, in our household, um, unless perhaps in some you know private conversations that my grandfather might have had with, with my grandmother. But my parents certainly did not, if they were familiar with him, they did not reveal that to us children, my brother and myself. So he he literally did not exist for me. I I was not aware of him. I think the experience was was different or would have been a, uh, different if I were in Prague, in the city of Prague, where I know that he was uh, a member of what you might call the dissident community of intellectuals and so on. His plays were quite popular in in certain circles, obviously not the official circles, um, but there was a buzz surrounding him, which really started in the 60s. Uh, but in in northern Moravia, uh, you know, where Schumperk is located, part of the Sudetenland region, about three and a half hours by train from Prague, that was a different situation. So that was my first exposure to him. When we started talking about him in school, when we started seeing him on TV, when we all watched his New Year's address in 1990, uh, where he famously uh, essentially said, as the newly or recently inaugurated president, I assume, my my fellow citizens, that you did not elect me to tell you again that our country is flourishing, right? So that authenticity, uh, that was also extremely different. And then my encounter with him obviously continued. Interestingly, I, I started reading him in the United States uh, in high school uh, at Berkshire and then at Colby College, which is where I did my undergraduate degree. So in translation, right, uh, in some of my European, Central European politics courses, 
I would supplement that with with going back to the Czech texts uh, and expanding my knowledge. Uh, but this is where I became more familiar with the ideas that I already heard when I was 10 or 11 in the form of the various slogans and manifestos and proclamations and speeches that, that he gave during the Velvet Revolution, during the protests, speaking uh, to the crowds and so on. So here is where I gained a little bit of depth, uh, became familiar with his place, uh, read his letters to Olga, um, his power of the powerless. Uh, and of course, this was part of really becoming aware of the broader set of ideas that the underground and the dissident movement in, in Czechoslovakia was producing, whether it was Benda's, uh, uh, you know, anti-politics and parallel police, uh, Pavel Tigrit working from his French exile, uh, and so on. So there was quite quite a bit of it, right? And that's where I started kind of framing all of this in the language of contemporary political theory, international relations, and so on. What works stood out for you when you started your reading in, in Havel? What works stood out as being particularly opposite or relevant uh, for uh, what the Czech Republic had experienced? What's, what spoke to you the most um, in general terms? Was it the, the fiction? Was it the, the theater plays? Or uh, was it the essays or some combination of the two? It was really a bit of everything. But sort of, you know, as, as, a, as a young adolescent, uh, um, 18, 19, 20, and so on, I was, of course, drawn to art, to theater. Uh, so his dramatic plays um, spoke to me in ways that his essays uh, and his sort of more philosophical uh, nonfiction work uh, could. And that that is true about Havel. It also applies to, let's say, Milan Kundera, one of his great contemporaries, uh, whose novels were also very formative in my intellectual development. Um, so it was, you know, it would be the garden party. It would be the place um, that, you know, he was known for in Prague in 1967, 1968, during the Prague Spring. Um, and I would have to single out uh, the garden party as probably my favorite. Um, I kept reading and rereading in Czech, in English. And that's also the play that I used, among others. Uh, when I when I talk uh, to my students about Havel, uh, when I take them to Prague every January uh, to really guide them through Central European contemporary history, teach them about the history of totalitarianism in the region, and draw heavily on uh, uh, works of fiction and theater plays and Havel and Kundera and so on, to to get them to understand the atmosphere of those of those days. Yeah. Havel, like Orwell, thought a lot about the power of language in shaping cultural norms and political ideology. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Garden Party pivots importantly on the, uh, in a sense, the bureaucratization of language under Soviet rule or under any totalitarian control. And it seems to me that Havel pursues this concern through his life, which makes sense as a as a playwright and then uh, and then as an essayist, he's he's obviously very interested in language and how language operates. But there's more here with with Havel. It seems that language is essential in um, creating the reality that uh, Czechs were living in 
um, under uh, under totalitarian, or as he says, post-totalitarian rule. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, about the significance of language as as you understand Havel was exploring it in his work? I think you're absolutely right that language is essentially front and center uh, of of his work, not just as a playwright, but also as an essayist. Um, I essentially think that even his famous letters to, to let's say, Alexander Dubček in the wake of the Prague Spring, or the power of the powerless, with the, the famous image of the greengrocer placing a slogan in his shop window. At the end of the day, I think it all boils down to language, to how we use symbolic expression, whether sincerely or not, uh, and if not sincerely, to what purposes and what it does to us. And in that regard, I see Havel as really a, a great follower of, let's say, Orwell in the English tradition, right? Orwell also reflected heavily on language, whether in his 1984 or in his Politics of the English Language, in his essay. But I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think it, it it shows up right at the beginning of his dramatic career as a playwright uh, with The Garden Party. That was his first play in 1963 when he was just a stagehand um, um, at the theater Nazabradli on the balustrade, which is the smallest theater in Prague, uh, but with a really rich and distinguished history. In December, I believe, it was December 3rd, 1963, this is when the Garden Party showed up, This was when it was first put on. And immediately it generated tremendous buzz among the intellectual and cultural elite, uh, unofficial, of course, although times were Im sort of improving, the atmosphere was a bit more relaxed. This was the build-up to the Prague Spring of 1968. But I think the Garden Party is fundamentally about language, about empty phrases that enable the main protagonist, Hugo Pludek, to really climb the social hierarchy, the hierarchy of power, get himself into a position of power, right? by repeating these mindless, empty, almost dadaistic phrases, right, which are com completely unassailable, right, so that uh, in whichever situation he finds himself, right, uh, and, and you have various antagonists, right, in that situation, they cannot attack him for regurgitating these silly, empty phrases, right. So it's about the phrase, it's about Hugo's mastery of the phrase and how that phrase turns him into an individual without any kind of identity, right? He becomes an extension of the bureaucratized system and that's what allows him to become somebody, right? He becomes somebody precisely at the point where he becomes nobody, where he loses his identity, uh, having just mindlessly repeated these phrases, empty phrases. Uh, and that is the message that Havel is, is teaching us through that play. And I think that message is relevant well beyond the totalitarian context of Czechoslovakia in, let's say, the late 1950s, early 1960s. That's why that language, I think, can be, or that play, why it can be played on and on and on in all kinds of contexts. A related idea is this emphasis on truth, uh, truth-telling, but also living, as Havel says, quite literally, living in truth, which I take to mean living authentically or living um, according not only to your principles, but according to uh, what you see as reality and living in accordance with a kind of reality, which is precisely what he seems to be offering a critique of in the Garden Party, as you say. 
And this seems to relate, I think, importantly to Havel's criticism of ideology and this sustained skepticism that he has about ideology as a kind of totalizing approach to the world. Do you want to say a few words about Havel's critique of, of this lack of truthfulness in society or the way that people live? I think this ties really well into his core concern with language, right? Which is really inseparable from his core concern with truth and living in truth, and as you correctly observe, staying authentic and faithful to one's own self. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, after all, what happens to Hugo Pludek in the Garden Party is precisely this leaving himself, becoming alien to, to himself, so that at the end of the play, when his parents ask him, who are you, which is a really simple question, or should be, right? He ends up with this long monologue, essentially saying, that's a silly question, right? I am, a, I am this and not this, and, and he does not have an answer because he does not know. Uh, he lost himself um, precisely by trying to cater to the ideology, so to speak, or figuring out the social mechanism, the bureaucratized society, trying to rise through the ranks, right? not being faithful to himself, not using language to live in truth with himself, right? And I think this uh, this resonates through everything that Havel had to say. I think this is essentially the substance of his letter to Alexander Dubček. Dubček comes back from Moscow, right, uh, after August 1968, having been released by by the Soviets, right, returns to the country, and, and Havel writes, writes to him, and essentially delineates for Dubček the options that Dubček has in terms of responding to what happened, right? And Havel says to him quite clearly, well, you can pretend that everything is okay, right? That we had, um, a, you know, a, a counter-revolutionary force in this country and that the Soviets came to help us, right? And you can adhere to the official line, to the ideological line, right? But that would mean that you are not going to be true to yourself, right? You're going to teach the citizens of Czechoslovakia that lesson, that it does not pay to be true to oneself, right? Or you can choose something else. You can be courageous, right? And you can speak out and it's going to have repercussions, right? It's not going to be the advantageous thing to do, the profitable thing to do, but you're going to live in truth even when that is not something that's going to enable you to to get yourself into a position of power, into a good job, and so on, right? And Havel's preference was quite clear. Uh, he also said to Dubček, or you can do nothing and, and keep silent and pretend that nothing happened, that you have no opinion, uh, and, and behave as a kind of a gray mouse, right? Um, so I think that this concern with language, with standing up for oneself, right? for not giving into the pressures of ideology, right? Even when that means persecution, even when that means going to prison, being harassed, all the things that were happening to Havel throughout the normalization era. Um, uh, I think Havel was, he, he didn't just talk the talk. I mean, he walked the walk, right? And as, as a world famous playwright at that point, who had the opportunity to leave Czechoslovakia and would have made a nice living uh, in New York City, right? For example, um, uh, that 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 he he came back and he chose to stay true to himself, and I think that was extremely important 
a message that really kind of resonated. After 1989, when people stopped being afraid, once the Soviet occupation ended and so on and so forth. Do you think that it was his work as a dissident or um, the fact that he was an intellectual and, and a successful playwright that launched him so quickly into uh, the spotlight? Seen from the outside, it seemed that he had almost universal support from um, the people, and he won a clear majority when he uh, was elected as, as president. What was it about him? Was it the political activity? Was it just his his um, his his character? Can you account for it? That I do not think that we can explain all of that. Uh, it remains a mystery even to me. This uh, this outburst of energy and almost sort of universal right coming together around the civic forum and Havel as sort of the face of the civic forum. Um, it it obviously did not last. Right, it lasted for for a few months, and then the usual processes of a, a well-functioning democracy, which is based on the exchange of different ideas and competing views, that started to take over, right? But in terms of his universal appeal at that particular time, I think what, what people were really channeling was the frustration and, and uh, just the, the sheer exhaustion after the two decades of normalization following the Prague Spring, that they were just really happy to to get rid of all of that, to not have to be, you know, forced to pretend that everything was was fine, that they could actually speak authentically, uh, let everybody else know what they really think about the situation in the country. I think that was what was really electrifying. I once again, I'm not sure that Havel was sufficiently well-known beyond sort of the the elite intellectual and cultural circles, unofficial, of course, in Prague and Brno. I think that his reach in that regard was quite limited. I mean, in small regional towns and in villages, very few people would have been aware, I think, of him. Perhaps those still remembering the Prague Spring, but even that was a fairly kind of an elite-driven, intellectual-driven event, uh, mainly in Prague. I don't think that there are too many people that are familiar with this place, once again, outside of those Prague circles. Last year, you organized this event at Colby with numerous speakers. And one thing that struck me about the, the event you organized is that it was titled Havel in Our Crisis. And you identify at least four principal crises, the crisis of values, the crisis of language, the crisis of truth, and the crisis of kindness. And as it happens, we've talked for some time about language and truth, but perhaps you can talk a little bit about why you decided to organize the event around crises. Do you think that Havel has something to say about contemporary crises? Um, was that part of the motivation of, of organizing it in this way? Well, I think that most of us would agree that uh, in the Western world that we find ourselves in difficult times, uh, whether due to COVID-19 the crisis of liberal democracy in the United States, um, especially in the wake of the capital, U.S. capital attacks, the trouble during the most recent presidential election, Donald Trump's efforts to delegitimize the entire process, attack it, and so on. And more generally, the fragmentation, which is quite palpable, uh, at least in the United States, where people stop 
talking to each other, uh, where we see so much ideological polarization. That dialogue basically stops. Things can really escalate. It, it is becoming more and more about violence, violent confrontations, and just the sheer inability to to listen and engage with those whom you know to possess different views from those of your own. I think that's something that Havel did extremely well under communism. Uh, he was always willing to speak to the other side. Um, there is also, at least in my view, uh, a big tradition of sort of nonviolent protest uh, that really goes back to Gandhi and others uh, that, that is present also in Havel, right? Sort of maintaining your, your own ground, uh, but without going into, into extremes, right? Uh, he was willing to talk to his minders, uh, um, all those uh, police details that were essentially uh, attached to him, were following him around. He was extremely kind to them. Um, there are several anecdotes that that float around about about this, right? Um, uh, his uh, seeing the guard standing outside in the rain and in, in a cold weather and, and inviting the guard over for a cup of tea, so on and so forth. Or the famous one about the guard following him one uh, winter afternoon to a sauna, right, which is where he wanted to go, but but the guard had some kind of a cardiac problem, heart issue, could not go in, and essentially approached Havel and said, "I can't go in, but I'm gonna get into trouble with my with my superiors uh, for not following you." And so Havel stood outside and waited for a replacement. Right. So 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 if you if you just pay attention to these. They stand these examples in marked contrast, right, to to what a, what has been going on around us. So I perceive that crisis all over us in the basic fabric of civil society, which is eroding, but also geopolitically. I mean, with the recent attack and a war of aggression waged by the Russian Federation against Ukraine. So that prompted me to come up with this event. I haven't except in a few courses in Central European politics, which are taken mainly by students interested in that particular region. It is interesting that, at least in my academic training here uh, on this side of the Atlantic, Havel does not necessarily feature um, on the reading lists. Right? Um, when, when we study the sort of Western liberal tradition, you know, there is a lot of Locke and, and John Stuart Mill. Uh, and so on, but you will not come across Havel, which I think is a great pity. Uh, I think that he can teach us many valuable things that perhaps are not as emphasized by the standard canon uh, here in the United States or perhaps even in Great Britain. Um, and so I thought that it would be very interesting to bring him into conversation uh, with all these issues that are floating around us today. Uh, and I simply chose to thematize uh, those issues uh, along those four sort of broad areas, um, because I once again think that that language is central here, uh, that it is closely related to to truth and, and values, right, and authentic existence in keeping with your persuasions uh, and in keeping with your authentic self, and, and, and uh, kindness in the sense of being always willing to engage uh, with those who may have a very different viewpoint on this or that, or, or simply uh, see the world in different terms. Yeah, this is a nice segue to Havel's place and places 
because uh, in some sense, Havel's Place symbolizes or invites people to engage in this way with empathy and civility. And one of the reasons that we're um, talking to you and organizing other uh, Václav Havel-related content this week is that this is the 10-year anniversary of the first Havel's Place at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and this has always been intriguing to me, these, um, these installations. They're part art installation and, and part commemorative monument to Havel and his legacy and the values that he stood for. Do you want to say a few words about what Havel's place means to you and any sort of experience that you've had in establishing a Havel's place or visiting Havel's place in your past? It's a metaphor. Havel's place is a metaphor. It's when you look at the object, the installation, if you will, it is essentially a memorial comprising of two chairs uh, linked by a round table with a tree growing through the center, right? They all have that in common. The execution, the materials and so on, that may differ, but essentially you're always looking at a round table. The chairs are joined to it. You can't move them, right? And then you have something that's organic and, and alive, right? A tree growing through the middle. I love that it's essentially a work of art. Bozek Šípek uh, was, was involved in, in, in formulating that idea and then making the first one, I believe, in Georgetown in 2013. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's obviously extremely important for discussion, for dialogue. I mean, the message of that artwork is very political. It's, it's very sort of related to our civil existence as citizens who exchange views peacefully while sitting uh, around a round table, right? Nobody is at the head and two chairs symbolizing either or, right? Different views which nonetheless come together to engage in dialogue. So in a nutshell, Havel's place, the installation, the artwork symbolizes to me his entire sort of legacy, right? You have a playwright, he sees himself uh, first and foremost as an artist, but nonetheless ends up playing a really important political role, catalyzing political role that changes the fate of a entire country and entire region, really, Central Europe. It was, it was not just uh, important for, for Czechs and Slovaks, but for Poles and, and, and for the Hungarians and everybody else in that region. And I think that these, these are extremely pertinent today, uh, the message of coming together. I think that that what they encapsulate uh, is, is exactly the opposite of what you see on Facebook, the way that we communicate today, the way language is used today uh, in cyberspace, in virtual reality, on the internet, um, with the big corporations having done so much through their algorithms and, and digging people into their echo chambers, right? To really make dialogue much more difficult, right? So in that regard, I don't think that it would be a bad idea to place perhaps the next Havel's place uh, or these two chairs conjoined to a table, perhaps in front of the corporate headquarters of, of Facebook or Twitter or X, as it is nowadays called. We're interested in many different values at libertarianism.org, but one of them certainly is is liberty uh, and um, is a I understand Havel's work. He was committed to freedom and having people live in freedom, as well as as um, the other values that we've been talking about. 
what do you think Havel's understanding of liberty was? Do you yes, have a... I think it's... So uh, I'll put it this way. I think it's very difficult to sort of place Havel in the context of the sort of classic liberal tradition. Even when you read his works, you will not find many references to what you would consider classic liberal philosophers, right? He is in some ways very idiosyncratic, very Central European. He dedicates uh, his Power of the Powerless to Jan Patochka, who uh, was a famous Czech phenomenologist. Uh, so you have that, maybe Edmund Husserl. So the philosophical context is, is this. But I think he's coming at freedom from a slightly different angle, uh, simply by being who he was, an artist, right? I mean, what is art about? Art is about revealing the world other than as as we perceive it, showing that it can be something else. Uh, it's fundamentally about freedom, about unlocking new cognitive spaces, right? Being being able for the reader, the audience, to imagine something that is familiar to them in fundamentally different ways, right? Um, uh, Milan Kundera talks about the role of literature and the novel um, uh, in terms of pulling down this curtain, he calls it the curtain, uh, that we have draped over our our faces and our eyes at the moment when we we're born, when we assume that the world we we're born into has always been that way and will always be that way, right? And uh, Kundara essentially says that's the role of artists, in his case, novelists um, um, uh, and, and, and literary prose fiction, to destroy this curtain, to tear through the curtain, just as Don Quixote did, um, and Miguel de Cervantes, and, and and reveal the world other than we assume it is. So in that regard, no true artist can function in a society that is totalitarian, uh, that is not free. Artists fundamentally require freedom to do what they do, and when there is no freedom, or when they feel that they cannot do what they do when there are any limits to that artistic activity, they will speak up. And I think that's that's Havel's background. That's how he's actually coming into politics. I mean, once again, he did not. He was not a politician by any means. Um, in some ways, the role of, of the president was a role that he accepted unwillingly and with hesitation, right, out of his sense of civic duty. But I think he thought of himself first as, and foremost as an artist. And artists are very good detectors um, of freedom or lack of freedom in society. And you said earlier that Havel isn't read very much um, as as a foundational figure or a principal figure in the liberal tradition. Um, and that's, I think, partly because he is not easily categorized um, and he's not easily pigeonholed. Um, it's difficult to know what genre to to categorize him in artist or essayist or political dissident or politician successful politician uh, and that's what makes him intriguing is that he talks across all those lines and borrows from or or can can draw on all of that experience and uh, in a sense he is the anti-ideological person because he seems to be resisting any particular worldview that is totalizing that he's kind of committed to exploring ideas in an organic uh, and creative way. Absolutely. I think that's part of his appeal, at least to me uh, today, 
that he's trying to move us away from these big tents which we like to occupy and define ourselves through. It is no secret that he really disliked political parties and partisan politics, um, that he always emphasized the individual, authentic individual thinking for him or herself. Um, so in that regard, you know, if, if we could be mindful of at least, least that part of his legacy and his message, I think it would do something to, to move us away from this uh, extremely toxic, confrontational either or black and white thinking that perhaps is going on today in the United States and elsewhere in the world to a, to a place where we can again engage in dialogue constructive solutions to problems that plague us uh, that trouble us I think that's a super place to wrap up our conversation Milan, thanks very much for talking with me it was a pleasure, thank you for having me Thank you for listening to The Liberty Exchange, a project of libertarianism.org. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Fortier and produced by Landry Ayers. Special thanks to the rest of the libertarianism.org team, including Pericles Niarcos, Allison Yaffe, Grant Babcock, and Paul Meany. If you like this and want more, you can visit us online at libertarianism.org.